0: I'm often the one going over to interview Ringo about like a new record, and every time Paul is on a record, he will go, like as if it's not completely obvious to me, he'll go, oh, David, Paul is the best bass player in history, like <laughs> as if he was if he wasn't just Paul McCartney, he right. he will always go, there's nobody who plays bass like that guy. <laughs> from Liverpool, England. The significance is that the Beatles have held this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very
1: talented guys. Hello, I'm Jack, and you're listening to the Here, There and Everywhere podcast, an interview show about the Beatles' influence in the past, present, and future across the universe and across generations. David Wilde is a Peabody and Emmy-winning television writer and producer, longtime Rolling Stone writer and editor, New York Times best-selling author, and prominent pop culture commentator. This episode is the second of a two-part interview. If you have not yet heard the first part, I implore you to check it out. There are numerous amazing stories to be heard. I will leave the link to that episode in the podcast description. Thank you all for your support and your overwhelming response to the show. I hope you all continue to enjoy our interviews. I know that you're going to enjoy this one. If you are not yet subscribed, subscribe now so you don't miss out on any episodes in the future. And also subscribe to David's new podcast called Naked Lunch. The link to that will be in the description of this podcast. Enjoy the episode.
0: I think the truth is beyond the best songs ever written, that peace and love that and, and the complicated emotional connections between them, that's part of the reason they still resonate as powerfully as they do. And uh, like I learned that again, doing the Beatles Grammy tribute. I don't know if I don't know if people can even see it anymore, uh, it should be out in some way. Um, but I don't know that it is because of the rights. But I was asked to write, like a two-minute film about the origin story of each Beatle. Wow. And it was a complicated thing to write because everything had to be approved by every other member so that I didn't wasn't just writing like a little Ringo film to be approved by Ringo, but it had to be approved. All four had to be feel comfortable with it. And so when I wrote it, I wrote in part one of the things that sort of hit me harder than it ever had was the fact that that Lennon McCartney relationship was rooted in both experiencing the loss of a mother at a very early age, like to me, it's like that hit me very hard. In fact, one of the most amazing moments in my career was we did the that first Grammys tribute was done literally the next day after the Grammy. So. Ken Erlick and I were the only two coming from one show to the other. But I was like, I'd been up for a week doing the Grammys, and then you go right into filming this show. And one of the things that I had forgotten and screwed up was the Beatles, The Apple organization had read my script and approved it. But they did flag one thing, which was I had uh, in that show, Alicia Keys and John Legend introduced Let It Be. and But I wrote, I think I had John say this line about how you know, as the Beatles were beginning to separate and the the relationship was beginning to sever, Paul thought of his mother and, you know, the mother Mary come to me basically writing about how he was in a way, like in that moment of, of emotional upset, he was looking for the comfort of this mother he had lost. And I wrote some version of that and Apple said, this is beautiful. And it sounds right, but we don't know that he's ever said that's what it means. So right. when when I real right as we're filming the show and as John and Alicia are beginning to do the spoken intro, I'm like, oh my god, I didn't ask, I didn't check anywhere because I don't know. Other than asking Paul, it's hard to say who do you ask if Apple doesn't know. Right and when they started to say it, the cameras are on Ringo and Paul. They were there and supporting the artist so beautifully. But when when John said that sentence, they cut to Paul. I could see on the camera and he went, he nodded yes. Like he was saying that was what he was thinking because if he had nodded no, it would have <laughs> been a very bad moment in my career and life. And I, uh, but fortunately he nodded yes. And that was just, I, now we do these Grammy tributes. We just did Paul Simon right after the Grammys and we do it three days later. So there's time to like, collect your thoughts but that did that was our first one and that was a i do remember that moment being a scary one
1: that was such an awesome night you know i I think i believe that was the night i actually started my twitter account for the beatles uh, coincidentally oh really 2014 i think i was still in high school but i remember i remember watching that like john mayer and Keith Urban did uh, Don't Let Me Down. That was unbelievable. I love that
0: performance. No, I heard you talking about that with, I think, Angie on that show, maybe. That's yeah. one of my favorite performances ever. That was just spectacular. I talked to, about that to John Mayer. He was the first person I saw during the pandemic. I went to A&M to film something, and he was recording his record with Don Was. And I told him, I said, I never quite got over how great that performance was. The other one, which I don't know if you remember from the show, there was... Uh, Gary Clark Jr. and Joe Walsh did While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And I'll tell you that I always remember that because like when you're doing these shows, you overshoot, you do too many numbers. And then, you know, this might not make the air. And that was a performance. It was not necessarily going to be in the show. It was just to fill out the evening in, you know, and to cover like a, maybe while they were doing a set change for the next performance but it was so good from the first second we heard it i just remember like uh like kenner and jack Sussman, who's a network guy going that's in the show <laughs> you know and uh <laughs> there but that was like yeah you know, there were but i i i was happy that you spotlighted uh that uh sort of rooftop don't let me down because i oh, yeah. i thought that was really spectacular
1: that yeah that's amazing i mean I personally would have loved if the Beatles could have gone into more instrumentals like, you know, John and Keith did. They just kind of break it down and go into like a slow jam. Cause I think, I think George totally would have been capable of doing that. I don't think he would have liked to cause I don't think he liked the spotlight that much, but oh, I would have loved I to I tell you a
0: story about that.
1: Yeah, totally. The same kid, the same
0: kid who said Ringo was a ruddle. Uh, I was called in just for like a day to help on the Martin Scorsese, George documentary. Uh, and I don't think I should say much about that. I don't, I, it's not like I know Marty Scorsese. Well, I was sort of just brought in to fill in for someone. But when I, when I walked into the house to work on it that day, uh, I'm sorry, my son, as I was leaving said, why do you love George Harrison so much? And I said, this is like I was going from my house over to where George had lived. And uh, I said, I love him because I think he doesn't play guitar out of ego. He plays out of the love for the song. It's all about the song and never, in guitar, a lot of times it's about me, me, me. I, me, mine. Mm-hmm. But that right. I think he's the least egotistical guitar player in history. And so my son, who now... I don't know what he is. They say he was like nine or ten at this point. Said, "Oh, so he's the best guitarist because he's the best person who plays guitar." And I thought that was just a crazy deep wow. sentiment. So I then go over into the house, and it's Olivia and Danny and Martin Scorsese, who I worship. And I'd never, I'd met Danny briefly, and I, I, I'd, I'd done stuff, worked with Olivia, who's wonderful. But I'd never met Martin Scorsese and I was nervous. And Martin Scorsese said, as I walked in the room, he goes, What's your take on George? And I was like, Whoa, that's quite a question to ask someone you don't know in front of (laughs) his widow and his son. But I told that story about my son, and they said, That's exactly right. That's you know, and I, I always think that's that's the truth, but I loved what you said or Angie said about, fly. I think she mentioned flying or you mentioned like yeah. flying. Like, that's one of my favorite instrumentals in history. It's like, Same. yeah, Yeah, absolutely. It's like, I, I think I love that more than a million. I love Jeff Beck, but that's more perfect because it's not just sort of there's no showing off. It's mm-hmm. just beautiful and sort of elevated. It's like funny, yeah. I mean, like even with this book is called Lifted because Ringo was totally, he goes, I'm lifting all the images off, you know, he goes, I, it's like when I see a Beatles picture I like online, I'm lifting it, putting it on my phone. That's why he, <laughs> and I said, yeah, but weirdly Lifted ended up being, I think that's the thing about the Beatles. They are an uplifting, they're the most uplifting success story in history. Like I grew up yeah. loving the Stones who still, the Beatles were broken up by the time I got there, but I was a big Stones fan. But in the end, it was like, Like I noticed my kids don't really care about the Stones like I do. And Mm -hmm. I think it's that there's like the the Beatles fulfill some societal need to be to have something that's inspiring and uplifting and positive. And I think beyond the songs, there's just an energy to it that the world needs.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, even from the very beginning of the Beatles, when they first auditioned for Decca Records and they were rejected and Decca said, uh, "Guitar groups are on their way out. The yes. Beatles have no shot at success." Um, I I know a lot of people love underdog stories, and apparently, the Beatles, the biggest band in the world, were an underdog story yep. at one point. Yeah, do so I, no. I think you're right about that. And they're
0: from Liverpool, which you know, people in London at that point rolled their eyes at. Um, I see the Dylan. Are you a huge Dylan fan too?
1: I am a huge Dylan. Is my second. Third favorite artist, maybe tied with Paul Simon. Those are my okay, big can three. Can I tell you one Dylan story? Absolutely, yes. I would love to hear that. So
0: it's a whole crazy story. But basically, after 9-11, I was called into a meeting with him to brainstorm a project, which it's too long. It's a separate podcast. But like uh, my son is named, uh, my oldest son, middle name is Dylan. Like I'm, Dylan is, that's again, because I didn't have the Beatles. I did grow up in the era like the first record that I thought was deep and important was blood on the tracks. I, I think I fell in love with a girl, first crush, first makeout party was to blood on the track. So <laughs> he's big to me and to have that experience of like, he uh, like, here's, I'll just tell you one story, which is uh, at the end of this four hour meeting, which is like, to, it's like to spend four hours brainstorming with Bob Dylan and be way behind not remotely be able to keep up with him like I figured out what he was saying the next morning I began to figure out what he was saying because it was so (laughs) he's so much he and if you read his chronicles it's like his mind is beyond it's not his narrative is so advanced and so brilliant it took me but he also is like a wonderfully sweet guy because I remember he goes as I'm leaving he goes you got boys now, right? You got boys. I go, yeah, yeah. One of them sort of named after you. So yeah, you know, you know, <laughs> he goes, let me get him some cookies. And he was staying at a hotel and he called down and got like black and white cookies from a deli across the street or something and put them in a napkin. And I'll always say like, not only is he the greatest writer, because I believe he is the greatest poet writer of all time. He's yeah. also a nice guy who would wrap cookies for your kids. Oh, so, wow. uh, so yeah, that's my, uh, I I had it, I couldn't miss Bob,
1: the picture of Bob behind you. That's so beautiful. So that actually reminds me of a question that I was asking myself today. On my ride home from work, I was listening to American Tune and The Boxer by Paul Simon and Simon and & Garfunkel. And it reminded me of this question I always have on my mind, which is, who is the best songwriter? Paul Simon, Bob Dylan, or Lennon McCartney? And so I figured I'd ask you and see what your opinion was about that.
0: Well, it's, I just spent last, a week and a half ago, I just spent a week realizing the depth of Paul Simon's genius, because, like, we had all sorts of great artists, Bonnie Raitt, Stevie Wonder, you know, all sorts of great artists doing uh, Paul songs, including Paul at the end, and that special will air on CBS, you know, later this year. But the thing I realized about Paul is, not only is he a genius poet, but in terms of the musical ambition and range there's no one who touches him like all these artists in a different way we're all saying the same thing of like holy shit is this tough like because there is like nothing expect- like where you know there are songs that bob dylan did that are standard like a blues or a folk but like there's nothing standard with almost anything paul simon did musically yeah. and time after time like uh Uh, a close friend of mine is Brad Paisley who like, he goes, I can't believe how many words this guy has. Like Mm. the words are like rap, like, and that it's true. Like there is like an American tune, which you mentioned, like Mm. Paul did it a new added, new lyrics and did a version of Brianna Giddens, who's this wonderful, you know, brilliant young talent. Uh, and he sort of made it more sort of to the moment of 2022. Uh, and it's extraordinary. Uh, and you have Garth Brooks and Trisha Yearwood doing The Boxer. I mean, it just, the show, but every one of them was like, holy crap, this stuff is difficult. Uh, it's challenging and it's deep. But I will say, I guess I'm not afraid to say that I think Bob Dylan, in terms of being a writer, a poet, is to me not only the best writer in the history of popular music. I think he's my favorite writer, period. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, and I, it may mean I'm shallow, but like Shakespeare's fine, (laughs) but Shakespeare (laughs) didn't, never recorded. Like, I don't even think Shakespeare has a record as good as street legal, much less blood on the tracks. (laughs) Uh, So he's, I think he, like, I will say of all the people we talked about, he's the only one I named one of my kids after. So I, I think he's, I think in terms of writing, there's no one who comes close and my limited dealings with him. Super cool. Like funny. Uh, uh, You know, uh, I, 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 I found myself getting so comfortable with him over a few hours that I imitated him to him, which is a really scary thing. (laughs) Oh, wow. I went hit. I actually, I, I did like a, uh, I made fun of a fight scene he had with Rupert Everett in a really bad movie. he made. Oh, I've seen that, yeah. And, and, and he goes, I, and I said, but well, we don't want anything because of the thing we were brainstorming. I said, we don't want like a fight scene like with Rupert Everett. He goes, what do you mean? <laughs> and I go, you know, when you go, hey, and he throws a punch. <laughs> and the weird thing is being like a Dylan fanatic, you know, you find out later, like he did box, you know, but yeah. uh, that movie, which you've seen it, right? Yeah, it, yeah it is not a good movie <laughs> as much. We can love Bob Dylan and we can love even the two John Hyatt covers he did. Right. Straight away on that. Uh, but yeah, even I can say, I don't think he should have made the vehicle with Fiona and Rupert Everett. Uh, and the director <laughs> who I think died like within an hour or two of finishing that movie or not finishing it. Uh, uh, yes, so I, yeah. Uh, so I, I think I've answered one of your questions in an hour so
1: uh... <laughs> no I, I mean I, I agree with you I think I think Dylan is uh, the best lyricist I think uh, I think Paul Simon may be the most adventurous of uh, sonically, but I also think Lennon McCartney might be the most imaginative. I don't know how to, oh, how to word that yeah
0: i i am I think in terms of changing the language of popular art, I give it to Dylan. And uh, in terms of the most important recordings of all time and the greatest songwriting duo of all time, it's Leonard McCartney, 100%. I don't think Mm -hmm. anyone even comes close. But working on this Paul thing and sort of really focusing on the songs, I realized exactly what you said, that in terms of Ongoing musical adventure because like I you know I worked uh I did an event with him at the Grammy Museum on like the last record, (laughs) you know. And Mm -hmm. the thing is he never like as much we're Dylan fanatics, but we could admit that there were like maybe a lost decade or so (laughs) somewhere in there where 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 not every record was golden. I think Paul Paul Simon is the most consistently, I think you know, he's sort of like the master class of ambition musically and lyrically and there's stuff i i literally can't believe how uh how adventurous he remained you know and, mm-hmm. like there's records that aren't even considered great that are like uh hearts and bones is one of my favorite oh, albums of I all time that and, I, yeah, and that absolutely. was a bomb <laughs> yeah
1: it's unbelievable train in the distance hearts and bones the title train in the
0: distance, that's I, I think that's maybe my favorite lyric by paul ever i just it destroys me and uh it's funny, like I uh, I did the line, uh, tour notes for Simon and Garfunkel on one of their their last the big reunion tour, like an essay for the tour book, mm-hmm. and uh, in, in interviewing him, I remember saying something like, uh, "How much?" I, I I said I got to tell you, "Hearts and Bones" was one of my favorite records of all time, and he goes, "Yeah, you know, all these people are telling me that now." He goes, "Uh, and Kate Man?" I go, "Well, no, not Kate Man. Cape Man's good, but I think." Like, I actually, my real theory is that Hearts and Bones is one of the greatest albums ever made. But the, I was around, the PR was, he was going to make a Simon and Garfunkel record, you know, and he wiped off Garfunkel from that record. Mm. I think that caused, you know, some bad will. And also there is one not great song on Hearts and Bones. And I think it's like first. And I think there's some people who've never gotten past allergies. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think it's a song about writer's block. But if, if you remove that... I think that's one of the greatest, like, that's like Band on the Run. That's like a perfect record to me.
1: So, David, what's your favorite Beatles album?
0: You know, it's super, what's funny is I don't, I've always said I'm sort of in the revolver, rubber, soul, uh, divide, one of those two, but like Ringo himself once said to me, don't be an idiot. Like Sergeant Pepper's brilliant. And I go, yeah, you know, <laughs> when they did the reissue, I was like, yeah, you know, the Sergeant Pepper thing is great. <laughs> I just, I just have some aversion to the obvious first answer. Like, uh, I, I will say uh, only in, re- uh, but I'm now all about let it be like uh, Angie was saying, like yeah. I, and the Billy Preston, the soul. Cause I love soul music. Like, mm-hmm. I, I have gone back and forth on what are the what's the greatest record of all time. And I'm I'm probably I appear in enough of these documentaries that I'm probably seen being a bullshitter because I think I've said it about Pet <laughs> Sounds, I've said it about Sergeant Pepper, I may have said it about Tommy. And the truth is, I'm on the fence about whether the greatest album of all time is a Beatles record. Because I I kind of think it may be Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. I think okay. that's the most ambitious record of all time yeah and i think it's maybe the greatest showcase that anyone ever made of what popular music could be but i think so i'm going to give that the greatest album of all time i'm going to give the beatles obviously the greatest band of all time and mccartney the greatest songwriters of all time <laughs> and dylan the greatest writer and uh and then paul comes in second in all of those things or something uh yeah <laughs> sort of but it changes day to day like i I, I think that's the important thing is to stay alive in your love of music enough to change, you know, Yeah. And like, yeah, see, I, I feel like I like the early Beatles a lot more than I did when I was younger.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It changes for me too. I think that uh, it really depends on what point in my life I'm at or the, even the weather, like if it's raining, I'll put on the white album. I think cause that to me, that's like a rainy day album. See, I put um, on
0: Rain, I'm very literal. I only oh. put <laughs> no, that's not true. I am I have to say, though, I often go to solo stuff. Like, It Don't Come Easy is easily in my top 10 songs of all time. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, there's a couple Paul solo songs that are like that. And Lennon, who, you know, we haven't even got into Lennon. Like, uh, right. uh, I got to work. In fact, the craziest story is... <laughs> When I was with Bob Dylan that day, I got, this is not my usual life, but this was just a crazy day in the life, to borrow a phrase. Uh, yeah. I got a call from, and he who cannot be mentioned anymore, but was then I could mention, was Kevin Spacey was hosting the John Lennon tribute that ran years ago. It was right after nine eleven, same mm-hmm. period. And I had to, and Bob Dylan being the coolest guy on earth said, take the call, talk to Spacey. And I talked to Spacey, uh, a little bit, but uh, that was like that was a great experience in terms of that was a that was a even though I never got to meet John Lennon, I got to sort of wallow in his catalog. Which, you know, growing up, I was all about John Lennon because he's definitely when you're young and a rebel or a rebel without a cause, he speaks to you very very loudly.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think John's. Uh, Post beatle career is extremely consistent. Every single album he's put out um, since the Beatles' breakup was was incredible. I can't think of a of a bad album. I can't think of an album that has um, a a couple of bad songs on them. Um, and even I mean, even if you look at uh, Double Fantasy uh, in nineteen eighty, every song. On that album is refreshed. It's energetic. It's new. It's innovative. It is everything that uh everything that he had while he was in the Beatles.
0: Yeah, I I feel so ripped off because I graduated like I reviewed Double Fantasy for my college paper. I I if he had lived, I would have been in Rolling Stone a couple years later because you know I I the fact that I never got to meet him, it will break my heart forever. Uh, I, I take some uh, solace in the fact that, you know, Ringo said he might have liked me. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that I'll, that's that's as good as I'll get with that. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, I, I, what's funny is that I have encountered a lot of people. I think there's a certain, it was fashionable a couple of years ago to act like John was not great as a solo artist. And mm. uh, I've encountered that and I don't, I I can't put up with it because like, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't like to hear that. I, I do think Ringo's solo work, like I did some podcast recently where I got to talk for like an hour about time takes time, which was the album. I was sort of around, once I got to know him, I got to see him sort of make that record. And I think Ringo is like the one who has become a better singer and a better writer, like, uh, in his, in his, you know, second coming and third coming, uh, But also, like, I have to say, like, Paul, just this remarkable run, you know, and Dylan, if you're a Dylan fan, you know, it's like to see, like, this sort of like, okay, I kind of screwed up in my 40s a little bit or got lost, but in their 50s and 60s and 70s, to be still making great music, it's just the greatest thing ever. Like, standing on the side of that stage watching Paul, that's like only four years ago, you know. He is, I don't care, you know, is the voice exactly what it once was? I don't know. But on pure, like, there's no one who gives a better show than Paul McCartney still, you know. Mm -hmm. And I will go and see Ringo, and I've taken my family to almost every, I've seen every version of the All-Star Band. And I still think there's nothing more inspiring than that these guys who don't need the work still love the work. And still... And the work is worth loving.
1: You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because I, I remember reading somewhere that I believe that Steve Jobs actually took inspiration from Paul McCartney touring in his solo years when Steve Jobs wanted he wanted to do the Apple keynote speeches right. himself. And he said that I, I believe he said that uh, there's something very special about the person who created the songs or the product being able to present them themselves like Paul might not be able to sing as well as he did in the 60s, 70s and 80s, but there's still something special about him saying, I wrote this song and this is called let it be. And this is called Blackbird. And
0: It's that's the magic of it to me. And, you know, like I, an artist finding their way back to their muse. Like I think in the middle of the pandemic, Bob Dylan put out and started recording the best record of the last, you know, his last 20 years. Like I, I can't, I love that record. Uh, I I think, yeah, there is the magic of those people. Like, even for this Lifted book, Ringo, like, there's insight and perspective that only they have. Like, Mm -hmm. Ringo always says, there were only four of us who really know what the Beatles felt like from the inside. And, like, you know, even little things in this book where he'll tell you, like, you know, we only had one car and we only had... (laughs) We shared, we got two suites and we shared, you know, two of us to a a suite. It's like their perspective, even he once told me about flying over for the Sullivan show. And he told me something that was happening on the plane. And I'm like, how could I not know what happened on the flight over? (laughs) You figured there's been, you know, 50 years for that story to be told, but there's only four people who can tell it. And if they don't tell it, it doesn't get told. It's just amazing
1: that way. Do you know anything about the Beatles that other people may not know, except for Ringo and Paul?
0: I know one thing that, and I won't tell you. Oh. There's, there's one thing. Uh, and I, that's, I, that's all I'm going to tell you. There's one thing where I said, I'm not sharing that.
1: That's awesome. But, uh,
0: the most important thing is the thing that Ringo said about the love they had. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what, like you, I can tell on your show and on a million shows, every Beatles-related thing, the impact, I was worried when I heard about Get Back, before Ringo said it was going to be magical, and so I was going to love it, I was worried it was going to be like a, trying to rewrite history. And I think instead it ended up showing us, no, it's trying to write the history, mm-hmm. you know, right the wrong of the history that uh came because they broke up before it came out. So they made it, you know, a darker vision. But the truth is a hundred percent what Ringo always says, that there were there was always love. There, you know, and so when people ever get sick of his peace and love thing, I always say, you know, they're wrong. I think mm-hmm. peace and love, it's like if you really, it's actually cooler. As like, as much as I love the Stones, the reason I will always say the Beatles are better than the Stones is that peace and love resonates in a way that the world has always needed, will always need, and will always lift up people in a way that the Stones, I love the Stones. They mm-hmm. were, but like, ultimately, when you're, when I am young, you, you know, I you put away childish things and a little bit, the Stones are acting out teenage rebellion and they're do it brilliantly into their 70s and 80s they're still <laughs> there's there's nothing cooler than that yeah but ultimately what's more beautiful than I think the beatles i think that's why i will always put them one and two and i will never change the order for me
1: what makes the beatles you know just four guys from liverpool who loved each other what makes them everlasting infinite and uh, a, a presence today when they broke up sixty years ago.
0: Two two things for me is it, it's what Tom Petty said the first time when he says there's utter chemistry. It's nothing. It's like a chemistry experiment, and they're the most chemistry four guys four people have ever had making music together. There's, mm-hmm. there's it's in and it doesn't happen until Ringo joins the band. I met Pete Best. He came to Rolling Stone. I bought him a birthday cake, but the Beatles were not great with until. Ringo came in. That's when they, that's when the magic happened. I think it's that chemistry. And the second thing is, and this is why the Monty Python moment that I told you about means so much to me is like, they're also incredibly important in terms of humor and wit. Like, I think, like, you know, I love Frank Sinatra and he had a couple good jokes with the Rat Pack, I guess. But the truth is that sort of postmodern wit that you see perfectly captured by Richard Lester in Hard Day's Night. Mm-hmm. I think that is part of the reason they're still modern. Like they they just, and and almost no one in music has, I don't think, like Randy Newman once told me, wit and music don't necessarily go, rock and roll don't necessarily go together, right. except the Beatles put it together. And uh, Ringo in this in the book told me, he goes like, it was this crazy thing that just happened when we came to New York. They loved us. He goes, the press was ready to murder us. They were ready to mock us, but we had in Liverpool, we knew how to talk back to people and New Yorkers loved it because they, the New York media loved us because we were wise asses. And I think that's a big part of it. They combined, you know, you know, say little Richard, and you got to give Chuck Berry and little Richard Everly brothers. Those people all made it possible But what they didn't have was the Marx Brothers. You know, it's like the Beatles brought Marxist, you know, they brought, uh, uh, you know, Marxism and uh, Groucho Marxism into the picture. (laughs) And that's the most perfect combo platter of genius in the history of popular culture.
1: And I think since the Beatles, that edge and that humor is something that's vital for a band or an act or a musician trying to make it because you have to be able, Oh, especially in, in the age of the internet, uh, you have to be able to, uh, be able to combat, uh, with wit and with, with humor. And that just makes you more relatable.
0: A hundred percent. When we were doing that Grammys Beatles tribute, I can tell you, like I remember sitting a Peter Frampton who had, was atoning for his sins doing the Sgt. Pepper movie and Eric (laughs) Idle, like I remember them sitting watching like the Beatles, like Paul and George rehearse. And they were like little kids. Everyone is like a little kid in the face of those two. Like there is no one who is not susceptible to that magic. I I think the Beatles this holiday in the middle of a global pandemic, Mm -hmm. that get back those few weeks, they were never more talked about. <laughs> like yeah. uh, I've yeah. never, and people are still talking about it. I, I still, if you go to a dinner party, I find Get Back uh, comes up constantly. And like grown people are like, like I, especially like if you, you know, the Jesus thing we joked about, but like, I do think the Beatles at their height of spirituality and whatever that peace and love thing is for people who don't necessarily have faith in anything else, they have faith in the Beatles. So it's like there is almost a religious aspect to it. And like, I will say, I, I don't, I never saw anyone walk on water, but I have now seen Paul McCartney come up with Get Back out yeah. of thin air. And, yeah. you know, that's my version of uh, walking on water. That is, <laughs> that's the miracle of creation in front of your eyes, you know. And uh, yeah. so, yeah, I will say that was a religious experience in every way to me, that, watching that.
1: I just rewatched that today actually and my mind was still blown like 6 months later.
0: I'm afraid to rewatch it, but I will maybe <laughs> when, when I get a quiet moment.
1: Are you looking forward to any re-releases coming up that haven't been released yet?
0: Um I I I guess true to my sort of origin story, I more like I would like the things I would most like would be like Back to the Egg, like deep mm-hmm. I would like uh, Press to Play deep. I want like those sort of, uh, I could listen to hours of that. Uh, uh, the one, I mean, like I, I was really so happy with the uh, um, like when the stuff came out more full from the Elvis Costello, Paul McCartney uh, sessions. That yeah. was very important to me because, and again, this is my, uh, where I feel like I'm I uh, uh, If it wasn't true, I feel like I'd be making it up. But I was weirdly writing a Rolling Stone interview with Elvis Costello and had an advance of the album. And I went to interview Elvis in San Francisco, I remember. And I said, what do you think of the album? And he goes, I haven't heard it. Because whatever reason, there was some, I think Elvis at the last minute wanted to like produce the album. And Paul wasn't going to give up that much control. So I had the experience of playing it for Elvis the first time he ever heard that album. So like that was one of the reissues I was most excited about. But I still, I think because of Paul, uh, you know, but I would like, listen, I would like to hear every outtake of, you know, half a dozen Ringo records. I'm, uh, you know, the all things must pass. I keep buying every edition and I can't wait, you know, I want more and more. I, you know, mm-hmm, I, yeah. uh, I heard you talking with Angie about like, let it be naked. Like that's yeah. That's one of the weird things is like, like I clearly am not a defender of Phil Spector's personal life, but like yeah. I love Phil Spector. I, I don't like let it be naked. I thought it oh, was, really? I don't, I didn't like it at all. Uh, huh. And maybe it's like, I think Angie had a somewhat of a similar feeling of like, I, I love what I heard growing up. And maybe it's just yeah. I didn't have the taste to know, oh, Phil Spector overloaded that with the million, you know, bells and whistles. But uh, yeah, he hadn't killed anyone as far as I know until then. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to hate all things must pass or, you know, uh, right. or, 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 or or let it be because of retro. And I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure that he didn't have us bring a certain i find the record more cohesive you know because of him.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's that's definitely a uh an added plus about that record because it was kind of unfinished you know until you know he kind of brought it up together and cleaned it up and uh, i just
0: wanted another record or two with billy preston in the band that's all <laughs> yeah
1: that would have been great
0: i did get to meet him on the ringo's first tour which was like oh really you know, uh he was on that first tour and like uh I'm so grateful now. Like there's a million guys. This is the way they were talking is Levon helm died 10 years ago. And like, yeah. that first tour, I got to know Levon Von helm. I got to know Billy Preston. It's like all these people who would be gone a few years later or, you know, and I'm in, in addition to everything else, I'm grateful to Ringo for letting me, you know, get to know for a brief period of time with Clarence Clemens and, some of those amazing people.
1: Yeah, Levon Helm was another great one. I know him and Ringo were mutual admirers of each other. Yeah, Ringo,
0: Ringo loved those guys. And that, I mean, we wrote a whole book about how much he loved those guys. And if he didn't love them, <laughs> they were out of the band. Like yeah. that was, he didn't really want anyone who was going to be, I, I did watch him like get rid of one member of the band before the tour started. Oh, wow. And it was like, uh, he was not missed. I can tell you that, you know, <laughs> it, it just meant a couple more guitar solos for uh, Peter Frampton and uh, a couple more bass solos or whatever for Jack Bruce.
1: Speaking of the band, I have to ask you, do you know if are, are is the band on Ringo Starr's self-titled album?
0: The There are, I think it's, uh, I think Levon's on, uh, is it Sunshine Life for me? I'd have to yeah. look it up. But I think Bay it's Raymond. Yeah. And I think it's like Dr. John who sort of auxiliary band at that point. Uh, there was a—I uh, don't know if he was credited as Dr. John or Mac Rabbinak—but so there was sort of a heavy band vibe uh, on uh, a couple of those uh, tracks. Definitely, I think it's "Sunshine Life" for me. Yeah. I think that, uh, but yeah, I will go back now. That'll give me. That'll be tomorrow. I will walk to that record and think about <laughs> that. Uh, but at that point, on that first All Star tour, All Star band tour, like it was. Rick Danko was on it and Levon, on it. Wow. So it was amazing. It was like, uh, and they had been in the wilderness a little bit and like Rick Danko was not in a great, great place. And mm-hmm. I think that was the amazing thing is Ringo had just sort of come out of his own issues and had, you know, cleaned up his act and uh, rehab then was in a great place. But he also, I think helped some of those guys get through a pretty, you know, come out of the darkness. Uh, you know, Joe Walsh was now his obvious, his brother-in-law, You know, Mm -hmm. Joe was not. uh, I think he really. He also extended a lifeline to a lot of those friends who had meant a lot to him. You know, Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think it's a. Looking back, it's kind of a beautiful thing that he, uh, you know, reached out to those old friends and probably got them through uh, a a tough period.
1: Yeah, I mean that's another really really cool thing about the All Star Band is like these guys get to. Play with their friends. They get to go up and have fun again on stage, and they get to you know relive their uh, their passion, and they get to work with the Beatles. Oh,
0: all, and, and and like Steve Lukather, I've gotten to know. He was the you know he and Frampton were the guitarist in the house band with. For was on the Beatles tribute, and that doing that, I got to know Lukather well. Who's one of the greatest guys in the world, but he always says like, and he clearly is as a, as a musician, he's the top, you know, he's one of the top session guitar players ever and beyond Toto and all that. And he goes, the best gig I've ever had is playing with Ringo. It's like, there's no, uh, there is no, there's no doubt about that. And uh, (laughs) you know, if he can see that, then any musician could see that there's, there's nothing better than being on stage with a guy who gave you the gig, you know, the Beatles. Gave everybody the gig of being a band. A rock, the the very concept of a rock band doesn't exist without the Beatles in the way that it does. They they changed what it meant to be a band.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the coolest moments ever, and the coolest concert I've been to was Ringo's seventieth birthday party in New York City at Radio City Music Hall.
0: That's the David and, Lynch
1: thing. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Yes.
0: And um, party showed up. And, yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes, that was, I think, for a charitable event for uh, David Lynch's uh, charity, yeah.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, that was amazing. I I was 13 years old, and once Paul came out, I felt like the whole balcony was going to collapse, and I I was, literally thought I was going to die. But that was my first taste at actual Beatlemania, which was really cool for me.
0: Yeah, I have to say, like the, like the Grammy Beatles tribute when they were together at the end of that, or... Uh, They did Dodger Stadium. Obviously, I remember doing some environmental going to some environmental benefit when I moved out here. When the two of them are together, it's like it's beyond it's musically exciting, and still, the thing that's really beautiful about Paul and Ringo like, as sad as it is that George and John are not here, like, I will say. I'm often the one going over to interview Ringo about like a new record, and every time Paul is on a record, he will go, like as if it's not completely obvious to me, he'll go, oh, "David, Paul is the best bass player in history." Like <laughs> as if he was, if he wasn't just Paul McCartney, he right. he will always go, "There's nobody who plays bass like that guy," and I go, <laughs> "That's so great." Is they they've never lost sight of, you know. Their absolute respect and love for what the other does, you know, right? And, and that's, you know, uh, I think that's part of the magic. And there's a lot of magic within.
1: Mm-hmm. And David, you have a podcast coming out soon. Uh,
0: yes, it's going to be uh, uh, called Naked Lunch. It's uh, from Stitcher and Sirius. I think own Stitcher. Uh, I just went on iTunes, and you can you can follow it, subscribe to it, or whatever. Uh, I just today, I think it launched. So it'll be out uh, May 12th. Uh I think it launches in. Yeah. I, if you want to hear me ramble even more and tell some of the same stories, <laughs> there is more. Yeah. My wife is shocked that there's any words <laughs> left. Uh, friend, I've never liked talking about myself. You know that. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
1: I will leave the link to that in the description. David, thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: Oh, my pleasure. No, and good luck with the show. And and, and yeah, thank you for like spotlighting. Like I've never met Angie other than like through Twitter and t- some, like loving her articles. Like her, you mentioned, she mentioned her Judy Sill article. I heard on yeah. your show that she's doing Nicolette Larson. It's like, I it couldn't be more excited. I think that there's these new young writers like, like Angie who completely re-energized. Like I went into TV because I was becoming an old fart rock critic. And the truth is, It's so exciting, especially all these young women who are like, Hmm. including at Rolling Stone, Angie being obviously very much an example there, that just have found a new way, like her writing about Judy Sill, I couldn't have gotten away with that in the 90s. And like, she's, I think they're like exploring the past in a way that's really, you know, bringing really important stories to light. And I, uh, so thank you for that too.
1: Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. Please subscribe if you like it, leave a review. David, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for your enthusiasm and your stories. Everybody, if you enjoyed listening to David speak, please subscribe to his podcast called Naked Lunch. The link to that will be in the description of this podcast. I will see you next week with a new very special guest.